Okay, there we go. All right, we are uh, today in Romans chapter 8, kind of in the middle of the chapter. Last week we were looking at verses 5 through 11, and today I'd like to pick it up with verse 12, uh, Lord willing, and down through verse 17. Hopefully I can keep the class under control last week. You guys totally ran away with things last week, and actually I enjoy that when you guys get into it like that. That's, that's good. So I appreciate all that interaction. Uh, Last uh, last evening, uh, uh, my wife and Teresa and I had the opportunity to uh, to uh, go to a uh, a uh, Wicklow banquet uh, up in the city, and uh, uh, as we were sitting there at the banquet, they played two or three different videos uh, of various. Uh, various issues, but um, one of the things that always strikes me when I'm at one of their banquets, we've gone to several over the years, and and one of the things that, that strikes me is when you see these videos of entire communities or tribes or groups of people who are receiving for the very first time in their life a copy of the scriptures and the ecstasy and the uh, just the the joy and the celebration i mean people literally dancing uh as the as the bibles are being handed or new testaments are being handed out and they're actually getting for the first time in their lives a copy of the scriptures in, in what the Wycliffe like to call their heart language, the language they grew up with, the language they know, and it's, you know, they're, is part of their being, and it's the first time they've ever had the opportunity to actually hold a Bible in their hand. And I was, as I was watching that last night, I couldn't help but think about about uh, the fact that this morning we're going to be talking about Romans chapter 8 and I was thinking about how many times in my life have I read Romans chapter 8 in my language. You know, I've read it probably hundreds of times. I've memorized the passage uh, on more than one occasion because I don't remember it. (laughs) But we just take it for granted. And I think sometimes we almost feel bored with the scriptures because we've we just had it and we take it so much for granted, don't we? And and I was just thinking as I was sitting there last night, I was watching these people as they were singing and, and dancing. In one case, one of the videos was showing us they were bringing the they were bringing the Bibles in by this boat, you know, a rowboat type thing, a large rowboat, and you know, probably seat. Uh, 10 or 12 guys or so, you know, and they had these boxes of Bibles in these boats, you know. And they brought the boat into the shore and they literally picked this huge boat up and just carried it up into the village, dancing as they carried this boat up into the village because in this boat were two boxes of New Testaments. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, 
uh, what would it be like to read Romans chapter 8 in your language for the first time in your life? I mean, we all did, obviously, at some point, you know. But uh, what would it be like to read these truths for the first time and know that this is what God is saying to you? Yeah, isn't that, isn't that a cool thought? You know, so maybe maybe by God's grace, He'll help us get a little bit of that as we're going through Romans, because uh, because I think we can get a little jaded and a little you know a little uh, accustomed to the Bible, and 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 that's not a totally bad thing. I think to some degree, uh, the, the familiarity we have with the Scripture is a, is a is obviously a strength. It's a it's a blessing and a privilege, but. But just to remember what a privilege it is and to remember how many men and women down through the course of history have literally shed their blood so that you can sit there today and have a copy of the Scriptures in your lap. It's a pretty remarkable thing, really. Well, uh, as I said, we are in Romans chapter 8 and... uh, Last week we started in verse, picked it up in verse five. Uh, let's let's just begin reading in verse one again to get the context and read down through verse seventeen, which is as far as I hope to get today, and and then we'll do our review and and we'll go on uh, from there. Um, beginning in verse one, therefore there there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation to the flesh, Uh, We are not, excuse me, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, 
These are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which you cry, we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Okay? Well, look back at those verses 5 through 11, the verses we talked about last week. And, and remember your little class mutiny where you totally took over from me and wouldn't let me teach. And, <laughs> but uh, what did we talk about last week? Well, I think the thing about the fact that the mind is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. And we really thought about it like that. But that's why when we talked about this in class, why it's so difficult to reason with them and mm-hmm. talk to them. Because they're hostile to them. Yeah, yeah. They really don't like God. <laughs> They really don't like him. I'm I'm in the uh, I'm in the throes of actually trying to wrap up my uh, final presentation for roundtable this uh, last few days here, and uh, trying to get it finished, get it written, and and I'm and I'm uh, dealing with the subject of the new age and monism, pantheism, that whole sort of thing. And and as I've been just immersed in that the last. Uh, whoever knows how long. Last couple months I've been working on this project. Uh, as I've been immersed in it, just, it just strikes me how, how much everything about that way of thinking is just hostility to the, revealed, to the revealed God. It just does not like God the way He's revealed in Scripture. And so it constructs this whole other idea of reality. But what else? Yeah. All the dust. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. The light shines on it, doesn't? It does in our lives too, doesn't it? Uh, it's kind of what we were struggling with last week. We all struggle still with sin and, and when the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives it kind of shows all that in us doesn't it yeah what else do you remember what we said about verse 9 Should have asked that question a different way, but I now I'm stuck with it. So, (laughs) 
I kind of harped on verse 9 a little bit. Why was that? Okay, okay. It really reveals to us, verse 9 really reveals to us who it is Paul's talking about in this passage, doesn't he? Okay. So, as you, as you start out the passage, uh, he talks about those who are according to the flesh, those who are according to the Spirit, the mindset of the and And uh, we might ask ourselves, is he talking there about a Christian? Is he, ta- is he talking about an unchristian, non-Christian? Or is he talking about uh, maybe a Christian who's not walking in the Spirit or whatever? Okay. But verse 9 makes it clear who he's talking about. Verse 9, he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So, he's, it's very clear that who he's talking about here in this passage, the person who has the Spirit, he's talking about a, he's talking about a believer, okay? And, uh, and that these are the characteristics or the marks of a believer. Uh, so, uh, so, then... We talked about, uh, remember we talked about some connections and we talked about uh, the believer's relationship to Christ and the believer's relationship to Spirit, to the, to the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and we, we pointed out two different ways that it talks about those two things uh, in those verses. You remember what we said about that? Pardon? Okay, yeah, we talk about that, but that's that's not where I'm going. <laughs> okay, that, that that is one of the things we talk about: uh, the fruits of the spirit as opposed to the deeds of the flesh. But where is Christ in relationship to me in this passage? Pardon? Okay, He's in me, so I have Christ. In me, and I also have what? Or what's the flip side of that? We have flesh. Pardon? Flesh. Well, yeah, pardon? Still talk. Okay, but we also have I am in Christ. Okay? So we have Christ in us, and we are in Christ. He talks about it both ways, right? And then we get to the Spirit, and what do we encounter? The same thing, right? The Spirit is in me. The Holy Spirit is in me. And I am in the Spirit. Okay? And and what did we mention? What did we conclude were... What are the ideas being communicated there? What's the idea being communicated when we think about I am in Christ or I am in the Spirit? What idea does that communicate? Pardon? Okay, we're one. When you think about being in Christ, how does it make you feel? Secure, Secure, right. It's that idea of security or safety of being in Christ. We're going to talk some more about that this morning, okay? And when I think about Christ in me or the Holy Spirit in me, what what does that make me think about? And you look at me and you go, I have no clue what you think, Rick. <laughs> what does it make you think about? <laughs> that's where you radiate. Okay, okay, okay. So the power or the influence, yeah. So what Paul is communicating there is, 
because because of our relationship with Christ and because of our relationship with the Spirit, we have this dimension or we have this aspect of being secure, being completely surrounded by and protected by Christ. And we also have this idea of being communicated of, of, of Christ and His Spirit indwelling us and filling us and influencing our lives and influencing the way we behave and causing us, uh, as, as he says, to, to radiate Christ out to others. Okay, so, so both of those ideas are being communicated here in the believer's relationship to Christ and the believer's relationship to the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, let's go on because uh, we have uh, just a ton of stuff to talk about today. And this is a great passage, the one we're reading today, and of course one that's uh, familiar probably to most of you to some degree or another. Uh, But just reading it again, picking up in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption uh, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. Okay? Well, um, first of all, in those, particularly in those uh, first couple verses here, where he talks about the fact that we are not under obligation, he says, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And he says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But those who live uh, according to the Spirit or who live by the Spirit and they put to death the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the body... He says, those people are going to live. Now, there's a couple things about those two verses particularly I want to point out to you. The first one is, what tense? What tense is, are those verses in? I read today, uh, I read this week, uh, this, I read this week the account of, uh, pardon the joke here, I read the account of when the past, the present, and the future all walked into a bar. And they say it was tense. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I just had to do that for you. Okay. All right. Okay. But anyway, what tense are we in here? Pardon? Future present. So which is it? Future or present? It is. Are you? Will be. Where do you get the will be? Pardon? Okay. So it's present tense. It's present tense. Okay. It's present tense. This is the present tense. Okay. There is a lot of future in here, too. We're going to get that, too. But, but the emphasis I want to make is in these verses, there are those who in the present tense are living according to the flesh. And those who in the present tense are living according to the flesh, what in the future is going to happen? Pardon? Death. Death. Right. Okay. They're going to die. You, you like that with me standing right on the seat? That's, that's what you get when you get this. When you come a little late to class, then you have to deal with me. <laughs> uh, so, so in the present tense, the person who is who is living in the present tense, in the flesh, 
will die in the future. Okay. What about the other person? There are those, he says, who by the Spirit are putting to death in the present tense are putting to death the deeds of the body, that is the flesh, and those people will what? Live. Okay? Okay. So, he's describing people who are in the present tense. Okay. Now, the other thing I want to point out to you, this isn't as obvious, but in the Greek, all of this is in what we call the indicative mood. Okay? As opposed to subjective or imperative or whatever. Okay? And particularly, particularly I want to point out to you that it's in the indicative mood rather than in the imperative mood. Okay? What's the difference between those two moods, all you English experts here? All you English majors. What's the difference between the indicative and the imperative? Okay. 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 The indicative is just the way it is. Okay. The imperative is a command. Yeah, she went to seminary. You have to. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... So we need to understand that these verses are not at their root level. They are not exhorting verses. He's not telling us to do one or the other. He's just telling us the way things are. That's not to deny that they have an exhorting quality to them. Clearly they do. If I read these as a believer, I understand that I don't have any obligation to the flesh. The whole thing he hammered on back there in Romans chapter 6. But rather that I have an obligation to the Spirit I have a duty to the Spirit, and so when I face temptation in life, when I face the inclinations of the flesh, I, I, I recognize that as a believer, my obligation and my duty is to the Spirit. So there's an ex- there is certainly a, uh, an element of, of exhortation in this that we take uh, as believers, but primarily the passage is describing to us two kinds of people. It's describing to us those who are in the flesh and those who live according to the flesh he says if you're if you are living in the flesh you're going to die you're an unbeliever if you by the spirit are currently putting to death the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the body you will live now what he's what he's saying there is it's it's not Conditional in the sense that, okay, now you're a believer, but you've got to put to death the deeds of the flesh even as a believer. And if you don't, even as a believer, you're going to end up dying. Okay, that's not what he's saying. In other words, some people read these verses and they go, oh, well, I guess a believer can lose his salvation. Okay? Is Paul saying here, is Paul saying here, well, okay, now you're believers. But I want you to recognize as believers that if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. So you better be sure you live according to the Spirit. And that you put to death or mortify the flesh in the Spirit. Because that's the only way you're going to live. Is that what Paul is saying? Well, there are many who actually think that. But I want to point out to you that... that uh, One of the principles of biblical interpretation is to remember that the Bible is its best commentary on itself. Okay? 
we can read a verse of Scripture, we can read a passage of Scripture, and we can read what all the commentators say about it. But really, the best commentator on Scripture is Scripture itself. Okay? And so we have to keep in mind, what else does Scripture say about this subject? About whether or not, as believers, we can ultimately somehow lose the security that we have in Christ. To somehow lose this salvation that we've got. To ask ourselves... Well, what else does Scripture say about it? And Scripture's quite clear. And Paul himself is quite clear, in fact. So Paul himself, in his letter to the Colossians, he talks about how believers' life is hidden in Christ. He says in Colossians chapter three, verses three and four, he talks about the believer being the believer's life being hidden in Christ in God and. And the idea there is the, is the believer's security in Christ. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, he talks about those who have received the Spirit. Now, we're all, in Romans 8, we're talking about the whole idea of those who have the Spirit. In Ephesians, chapter 1, in verse 13, Paul tells us that the, that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a what? As a seal, as a pledge of our inheritance. So he says, you've got inheritance... And here I've given you a down payment. Okay? And this down payment is evidence to you that I'm going to carry through on this proposition. Okay? And, and then uh, you have Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 5. He talks about the fact that we have received an imperishable and, uh, and an undefilable inheritance. So we have received, and in Romans chapter 8, we're going to talk about this inheritance uh, today, later in these verses, if we get this far. But he, he talks about this idea of inheritance. Peter tells us this inheritance is imperishable and undefilable. Okay? Uh, in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 11, the Apostle John tells us that we have, in the present tense, eternal life. Now, if you have eternal life, and six weeks from now, you don't have eternal life, then what you had now was not an eternal life to start with, right? Okay? John says, we have, in the present tense, eternal life. When we get to the end of Romans, chapter 8, so in this very chapter, we get that great passage, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, etc., 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 can separate us from the love of God. Okay? So over and over and over and over again we have in Scripture the testimony of the security of the believer. And I would suggest to you we have it right in the verses that we're looking at today. Because what conclusion does Paul reach here before we get out of the verses that we're looking at today? Before we get out of verse 17, the conclusion is that we all are what? If we have the Spirit, we are what? Verse, about verse 16. We are all the children of God. Okay? Now, now let's be real, folks. Can you be the child of God today and not be His child tomorrow? Which one of you will do that with your children? 
It's just totally foreign to our... <laughs> well, good point there, Sarah. <laughs> Yesterday I read on the Internet, you know, I learned so much wisdom from the Internet. Yesterday I learned on the, on the Internet, <laughs> I learned on the Internet that grandchildren are the reward you get for not killing your teenagers. <laughs> yeah, because those grandkids end up being teenagers too, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they are worth it, I can tell you. Uh, but at any rate, we are the children of God. That's the conclusion he reaches in these very verses. So whatever Paul is saying here in verses 12 and 13, I can assure you, he is not suggesting that it's possible that a believer would ever lose his salvation. It's incomprehensible to Paul. But more assuredly, it's incomprehensible to God. Okay? Well, so if he is not saying that, then what is he saying? Well, he's simply, as we said, in the indicative mood, describing the reality of things. And the reality of things is that those who walk according to the flesh will die. But those who have received the Holy Spirit by grace through faith have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit. They are, this is the reality of the Christian's life over the long haul. The reality of the Christian's life is they are putting to death the deeds of the body. That's just the way it is, folks. And if you've said you've been a Christian for 40 years, or 20 years, or 10 years, and the, and the testimony of your life is not that the deeds of the body have been put to death, or have been being put to death in the present tense, then it's not a Christian. I'm sorry. That's what Paul says. Not me. Paul says that over the long haul, that the overall tenor of a Christian's life is not that they live without sinning, but the overall tenor of the Christian's life is that they grow in Christ. It's just the reality. And if I'm not growing in Christ... See, I've been... You and I, if we're believers, we've been predestined to be conformed to His image. That's what He's about. He's about making us like Christ. And if I'm not more like Christ now than I was 30 years ago, there's something wrong. Maybe I'm not a believer. A believer grows. A believer puts to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And so that's what Paul is saying here. And then he says in verse 16. Verse yeah, go ahead. In verse 12, the word brethren. And I'm agreeing with you, but under that view, brethren must be a more generic term. Because if he says, if some of you are not living, some of you brethren are mm-hmm. not living, or living according to the flesh, and you're really not brethren. Yes, yes, yeah. I think that's what he's saying, yeah. Uh, well, going on then in verse uh, uh, 14, uh, excuse me, I misreferenced this earlier. I told you it was in verse 16, it was in verse 14, which is probably why you couldn't answer my question. But anyway, in verse 14, he says, For all who are being led by 
the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. So, he's been talking up through these verses so far. He's been talking about those who are in Christ and those who Christ is in. And he's been talking about those who are in the Spirit. And he's been talking about those who... in whom the Spirit is, okay? So, those are things... Now he's going to introduce a new thought. And the new thought is this idea of sonship. Okay? You know, as as we go through Romans 8, it gets cooler and cooler, okay? And so now it's getting cooler, okay? And and what's getting cooler here is that we now discover that those of us who have the Spirit stand in a relationship with God he is our father and we are his children. He uses the word sons here, but don't worry about that, ladies, because later on there, a couple of verses later, he uses the verse children, the, the word children, right? So it's not just us guys that are included in this. It's men and women. We are, we are, if we have the spirit of God, we are the children of God. Okay? And, and then, you know, he set out in verses 12 and 13 to set that contrast between the unbelievers and the believers. Okay. And, and then he brings that up again when we get to verse 15. For he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Okay. So, so now he gives us this contrast there. There, there are those who live in slavery and in fear. And he, but he says, that's not the spirit you've received. Now, he's not suggesting there that the Holy Spirit is to some people uh, a spirit of slavery. I, you know, some commentators read it that way. I don't see it. I, just, I see what he's saying there. Uh, the way I understand it is, is that the spirit we the spirit we receive is not a spirit of slavery. He's not implying that some people do receive a spirit of slavery. He's just saying the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of slavery, and that's the spirit you receive, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so so we have people who live their whole lives in slavery and in fear, and that's the way you were before you received the Holy Spirit. But when you received the Holy Spirit, what you got was not a spirit of slavery and fear, but a slave, but excuse me, a spirit of adoption. Now, the reason this is important is is because in verses twelve and thirteen, beginning in verse twelve, he says, "For you are not for you are not under obligation to the flesh." Okay, but the way he says it, what he's implying is. We do have an obligation. Our obligation is not to the flesh, but to the spirit. Okay, you got that? You understand what I'm saying? In other words, the way he says it here in, in verse 12, let me read it again so I get it right. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh. And he never actually articulates that we're under obligation to the spirit, but that's implied. Okay? So we are under obligation, but our obligation is not to the flesh, but it is to the spirit. Okay, so as believers, you and I all have an obligation to God, right? In Romans chapter 6, he talked about presenting ourselves as slaves to righteousness. Okay, so we do have an obligation. We have a duty to God. 
But for the believer, it doesn't come across that way. It doesn't come across as this burden of obligation we have. Which is why he says it the way he says it in verse 14 or 15. The why, he, why he clarifies it the way he does. We have received, folks, not a spirit of slavery, not a spirit of obligation, not a spirit of duty with this sense of fear that if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, something terrible is going to come down on my head. Now, that's the way I used to be before I encountered Christ. Before I received the Spirit. Before I received the Spirit, as Paul has said over and over and over again through the early chapters of Romans, I was a slave of sin. And I lived under the curse of the law. And I lived under this condemnation, this awareness that I was under the judgment of God. You see, what motivates a slave? Ultimately. Fear. Paul says, now folks, come on. You've not received a spirit that leads you back into fear. You've received a different kind of spirit. Yes? I knew a young man years ago that uh, See, and that's the irony of it. God says, that's not what I've given you. I'm not giving you this spirit of fear. Okay. Now, this is important to me personally because I grew up, I grew up in, a, in a context in which you were taught you could lose your salvation. Okay? I just always believed it was possible to lose your salvation. Okay? That, was, that was just my comment. Well, it tur- turned out when I got older, I found out that my parents, uh, even though they were in that context for many years, really didn't. We're not to believe that they didn't. They, they thought they were secure, but because Dad was ministering in a context where that was taught and believed, he had to be very careful about how he articulated. He was so careful about how he articulated, I never heard it. Okay, <laughs> until I was a little older. Okay, but uh, but so I grew up in that context. But the, but as I thought about it later, after after I really got into the scriptures on my own. Uh, and, you know, and got away from home and away from that context and kind of got in a place where I was studying the Bible on my own. One day I woke up and I realized, I don't think I can lose my salvation. You know, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a night and day type of thing, you know, where I, you know, wrestled it all out and then made a conclusion. It was just I realized one day, I don't believe that. But I always wondered, why was it all those years when I thought I could lose my salvation, I never thought I had? Because I wasn't always... Well, let me just put it this way. I was a PK. (laughs) I was a preacher's kid, okay? So, you know, take that for what it's worth, folks. I wasn't an angel, okay? (laughs) But, but 
But I never thought I'd lost my salvation. You know, and, and for many years, I just kind of assumed, well, probably the reason is because I was so proud you know, of my good works that you know, it never dawned on me that God wouldn't save me. You know. Well, maybe that was it. But, but, but the, the flip side of that was you just keep reading all these promises in the Scripture about God's love and His faithfulness and His care. You know, and, and so, you know, it's possible that, you know, that my theology, you know, I'm talking the theology of a teenager or, you know, pre-adolescent or whatever, that my theology said I could lose my salvation, but the reality is I had all these promises and I just knew I hadn't. You know, I don't, I don't know what was going on. But there was a point in my life in which I came to understand that I no longer had to live in that fear. That's not the spirit God has given us. We don't operate out of fear. We do have an obligation, but it's the sense of obligation that a son has, not the sense of obligation that a slave has. That's Paul's point. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For God has not given us a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but He has given us a spirit of adoption. We weren't sons, but now we are. We weren't children, but now we are. We weren't born naturally God's children, but now we are God's children. We've been adopted, and the result of having received this spirit of adoption is what? What do we do? Instinctively do. End of verse 15 there. Cry out, Abba, Father. Okay. Now, you've probably heard all kinds of stuff about Abba Father. Okay. Uh, and and many times I've heard uh, heard it said that um, that you know Abba, that's just that's a that's a baby's way of talking to God. You know, so it's kind of like the, the baby's cry to God. You know, or to the Father. You know, so it's kind of, it's it's kind of like the baby's babbling. You know. Uh, well, that may be true. Maybe your kids, when they first started saying "Daddy," said "Abba." I don't know, but that's not the point here. Okay, that's not the point. Which I'm kind of glad because that never really made any connection with me. I went, "Well, I'm not a baby anymore. You know, I'm a guy. I'm struggling with life. What does this Abba Father mean to me?" Okay. Well, the key, the key is remembering where it was first used. You remember where that phrase, Abba, Father, was first used? It was first used by Jesus in Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14. You see, Abba is, uh, is actually just the Aramaic word for Father. And Jesus ministry and growing up in the context he did, he used the Aramaic, okay? So it's just the Aramaic word for father. So when you have when it says Abba Father, it's it's the first the Aramaic word and then the Greek word put together. It's kind of a formula. Okay? And in fact, because Jesus used it in Gethsemane it apparently, many commentators believe, has by the time Paul has written Romans, has become kind of, I don't want to use this 
word in a negative term, you don't use it in a positive. It's been kind of a liturgical way of the church praying to God. So in the churches, it's very possible, uh, many commentators believe, that it's very possible that in the very early New Testament church, one of the first things they adopted as a way of prayer is using Jesus' words, Abba, Father. And the thing is, is it's kind of a colloquialism. It's a, it's a, it's a way of talking to God that's, that's very intimate, it's very personal. Okay? So it has this intimate, personal thing to it. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, I, I grew up in a family of three boys, okay? And uh, so we were just boys the way boys are, you know? And, uh, I don't know where we learned to do this or not, but we called my father Pop. Okay? And my dad was a minister uh, for many years when I was growing up. And I remember one time we were at this Christian camp and, and, uh, and dad was there and the guys were there and stuff was going on. I don't know what. And another minister, a fellow minister in the state, heard one of us three boys, I don't know which one it was, call dad Pop. And he kind of cornered my dad. And the son says, "You let your kids call you Pop, you know? Well, you know, that was, yeah, yeah. See, there was nothing to us. There was nothing derogatory about it. It was just our colloquial, kind of intimate way we talked to dad. You know, there was nothing demeaning. You know, it was just the way we talked to him. Okay, and there was nothing disrespectful men about it at all. Okay." Well, that's kind of what Abba Father is. This is kind of this kind of inside family way of talking. And actually, it's so foreign to the way people think. You'll read through the entire book of Psalms and never once in the entire book of Psalms will you see a prayer in which God is addressed as Father. Now, the word Father is used four times. Uh, excuse me, there is one time. The one case... Is it's a messianic song? I think Psalm 89, messianic song. It's an example of Jesus praying to his father, and it uses it uses his father in a prayer. The other times the word father is not used in the kind. It does talk about God being the father of of people at uh, in a couple of verses, and in one verse it's the, David talking about his own personal father. Gary, you were going to say something. Oh, uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good. Well, that illustrates the point here. Okay. So, so Jesus is. Oh, and the thing I want to mention is, so the Jews did not typically, in prayer, refer to God as Father. This is why it is so significant when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Master, teach us how to pray. He says, when you pray, say, Father. He's revolutionizing our relationship with God. And then he gives us the example in the garden. And this is what I love about this. Jesus is in the garden. And he is, you know what's going, going on there in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He is struggling with this horrific suffering that he is 
staring, staring him in the face. He's facing this horrific, horrific suffering, incomprehensible suffering that he's facing. And simultaneously, he is in this titanic struggle with evil. Un- incomprehensible struggle with evil. And in this intensity of this moment of intense struggle with evil and horrific uh, suffering facing him within the next few hours, what does he do? He cries out and he says, Abba, Father, deliver me! Unless I will submit. And so here we have the cry of Christ. In this hour of crisis, he says, Abba, Father. And this is the spirit that we have received. We have received a spirit in us that when we, I say instinctively, but it's instinctive because we have the spirit, that when we are in the hour of greatest crisis, when we are in the hour of great, when our suffering is overwhelming, when our conflict with evil is overwhelming, we find our hearts crying out and saying in this intimate way, Abba, Father. And we are asking, as Jesus asked, to have this cup removed. And on the other hand, saying, but if not, Lord, I will submit. Now, that's not the, that's not the attitude of a slave speaking out of fear. That's the attitude of a child speaking out of love. And Paul says, that's the spirit that we have received. Well, he goes on. He talks about inheritance, but we're out of time. So this week, when you are facing those crises, when you are in your Gethsemane, and when your heart, when you find your heart crying out to God and saying, Abba, Father, I want you to know something. Paul says here that that is the witness that God has given to you that you are His child. Okay? We'll pick it up then uh, with those last couple verses and go on into the next one next week.